Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. I'm your host, Jody Atariwala. Our guest for this episode is Rear Admiral Brian Santarpia of the Royal Canadian Navy, who at the time of our chat was Commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic, Commander of Joint Task Force Atlantic, and he was also the Maritime Component Commander who advises the Commander of Canadian Joint Operations Command. Rear Admiral Santarpia joined the Canadian Armed Forces in 1986 under the Officer Candidate Training Plan as a Maritime Surface Officer. His position as Maritime Component Commander makes him one of the most informed naval officers in the Royal Canadian Navy. He has acute insight into the maritime security picture of the day, so we are honored to have him as a guest on this podcast. We'll talk about service, leadership, platforms like submarines and the future Canadian surface combatant, and we talk about naval warfare and challenges and capabilities of the Royal Canadian Navy. Also, just a quick point to say that our chat happened shortly before his retirement, and it predates the Israel-Hamas war in Gaza. It's a wide-ranging chat with a lot of great insight, so we really hope you enjoy this episode. So let's cue the music and welcome our guest, Rear Admiral Brian Santarpia. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Atariwala and I'm your host. And today I'm very happy to welcome to the podcast Rear Admiral Brian Santarpia of the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, Rear Admiral Santarpia is the commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic and he is the commander of Joint Task Force Atlantic and he is also the Maritime Component Commander. So needless to say, uh, his portfolio uh, spans a wide swath, and uh, I am very confident that that will make for a really interesting conversation. Um, Admiral Santarpia, thank you so much for joining me today on Go Bold. It's great to have you here. Yeah, it's, it's my pleasure. It's, uh, it's been a great uh, three years in this position, and it's a, a great uh, privilege to get to, uh, to do all of those things on behalf of Canadians with a great team here. Uh, well, that's awesome. And, you know, as I do with all of my guests, I, I start by asking, what was your motivation to serve and what was your motivation to pick the Navy? Yeah, when I was a young kid growing up in um, Aldergrove, British Columbia, I joined a, the local Sea Cadet Corps. And the leadership of that corps was just outstanding. There was a fellow there named uh, Terry Metcalf who had been a naval officer before he went back home to, to teach French in high school and be the fire chief and run the Sea Cadet Corps. And, uh, and he and the other leaders in the Corps, they just opened all of our eyes to the possibilities. And so a lot of us joined the Navy, and I knew from a very young age, at the age of 13, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to be in the Navy and drive ships and, uh, and lead sailors. And so, uh, so I got on that path as quick as I could. Oh, that's super cool. Um, and there's many paths into the Navy. Um, which one did you pick? Yeah, so when, when I joined, I originally thought I wanted to go to military college, but uh, I wasn't uh, a very good student as a young person, and so, uh, so that wasn't the path that they let me do. So I went away for a year and, uh, and worked uh, loading trucks and pumping gas and went to a community college, got my marks up enough, and then I joined what's called the Officer Candidate Training Plan at the time, which uh, took us in with a high school education and, uh, and got us on ships a lot quicker that way. Uh, and then about uh, 10 years into my career, 
Uh, I had a really great boss who recognized I wasn't going to get a lot further if I didn't get back to school, so they sent me back to university for an undergrad. Well, it's done you well. Uh, you know, look at where you are now. It's uh, it's awesome. It just shows that uh, that there are so many opportunities in the Navy, uh, or in the military writ large. Um, I know the Navy today is facing some challenges in recruitment and personnel. Uh, actually, I don't think it's it's just exclusive to the Navy. It's across the Canadian forces. But there's solid work and, and stable work there that I wonder if people, you know, if enough people really realize that. It's always a challenge to make sure that, that we get the word out, that people can see what it is that uh, the Canadian forces and the Navy are, are up to uh, at home and around the world. I think in general that, uh, that once people see uh, that kind of an opportunity and realize uh, how exciting it's, it can be, uh, that there's a group of Canadians who, are, who will be interested in, in this opportunity. And so I think uh, that new program you're talking about, the Naval Experience Program, you know, if we do a good job of, of uh, advertising it and showing the opportunity, and if we make sure that the young Canadians who come and take advantage of that year of paid employment and gaining experience is uh, as enjoyable as it, as it should be, uh, I think we'll, we'll keep a significant number of them. And so that's part of the solution space. The other part of the solution space is making sure that the people that work with us now feel rewarded and feel appreciated uh, and see that there's a, a future here. Uh, and I think with the revitalization of the fleet we have, with the new ships that will come online in the next few years, you know, and there'll be nonstop new ships coming into the Navy from from um, a couple years ago right up to the next 15 years we've got planned. Uh, I think when people see those experiences and those opportunities, uh, that they'll be interested and we'll get the right people. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, you know, it's it's a really interesting program and I hope that it, uh, it has success. Um, but it will be challenging because you're having people that enroll in this program uh, come in and they're committing to a year, but it takes a long time to get somebody up to proficiency in terms of, you know, uh, learning a specific task, uh, learning tasks, learning uh, things like damage control, fire response, uh, first aid, all of that stuff takes time to generate. And people are needed to do that training. Um, but then you've got to put these people into ships that will deploy abroad, um, but they're not fully trained up to do what a trained sailor, and I'm using air quotes here, um, a trained sailor can do. So, uh, so how, how do you balance that? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think um, the key is to not overcomplicate it, in my opinion. You know, Canada won World War II in much harder starting position than we are today. Uh, at the beginning of World War II, there were um, 3,500 people in Canada's Navy, and we had 13 small ships uh, old ships, uh, not a whole lot. And six years later, we had 400 ships and 100,000 sailors, and we had won the Battle of the Atlantic, the most important, long-lasting battle of the war. Uh, and so, you know, people, Canadians, know how to get after a problem much more complicated than the problem we're in now, to be honest. I think that we need to be, uh, we need to get over ourselves just a little. The truth is that uh, we do need experienced people in ships but not everybody in a ship has to be perfectly experienced and, and perfectly knowledgeable on all tasks. And uh, there's room in a ship for people who are just starting out. So some of the people, some of the jobs that, uh, that you do early in your career, 
uh, don't take as much technical ability as as they'll need as you'll need later in, in a career. And so it's perfectly acceptable to do a couple months of basic training and understand what it is to be in the military, and then to go to the coast and get into a damage control school where you learn the basics of firefighting and first aid and seamanship. And then within about three and a half, four months, you're ready to be in a ship. Uh, and if we can do that efficiently, uh, that's a good experience. And then a young person in a ship, uh, standing the watch on deck, being the lookout or the helmsman, that's a task we can teach them to do pretty quickly. And then they're, they're doing it on their own in a few months, and they'll have a great experience. They'll get to see a neat part of the world, depending on where the ship's going. Uh, you know, in, in my career, I've been in every single continent except for Antarctica. Uh, there's a chance that they're going to go to Europe or to Asia or to Africa, uh, see a part of the world that they never would have seen otherwise, spend that time there with some friends uh, and, and learn the beginning of a skill. And then if they like it and we like them, then hopefully they'll stick around and, uh, and make a whole career of it. Yeah, what's not to like about that opportunity? I think, uh, and I think it, you know what you say. Let's not overthink it. Is probably really a good good approach for this because, uh, yeah, uh, your World War II Battle of the Atlantic example is is a very very good one. So yeah, I I hope it uh, I hope it works out well for the Navy uh, because as you said, there's so many opportunities and uh, and clearly if you stick it out, you know maybe one day you can become an admiral as well. Absolutely. Although I think, um, looking back on my career, I would have stopped at about commander if they'd offer, if they'd let me. I would have uh, stayed on the ship the whole time. <laughs> you know, I've I've heard that from many people. It's it's uh, you know, it's one thing to have the rank, and and you know, there's 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 some perks to that. Uh, of course, um, there's a lot of hard work naturally, but um, but yeah, if you're if you're a true sailor, you want to be on the ship, and uh, once you get to a certain level, that becomes less and less, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we often say the first half of your career, uh, you know, you, you serve, but it's about you as an individual as much as anything. And the last half of your career is about giving back to the institution, making sure that there is an institution uh, going forward that has ships and sailors ready to do what, whatever Canada needs them to do. And so the last half of your career really is much more about the institution and, and much less about your personal ambitions at that point. Right, right. So, you know, we could get into some of the highlights of your career, which is spanning 30 plus years. And I guess, you know, perhaps we've just alluded to it. Maybe one of the, the high points was commanding a, a modern warship. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but if you were to pick one thing in your career that really stands out, what would it be uh, thus far? Yeah, you know, that you're exactly right. I think that's the highlight for every um, naval officer who's a naval warfare officer. Um, aspiring to and then obtaining command of a, of a ship really is the ultimate goal. Uh, it, it is the peak. I, I was fortunate enough to command Her Majesty's Canadian ship, St. John's, and uh, it was just a great ship. Many years ago, I, I read um, in, a, in a book that at the time of, of Nelson, Admiral Nelson, when he was the admiral in, in victory, uh, Victory was described as the most complex machine-person interface ever created at the time. And I think a modern warship is the, is the same uh, equivalent in today's world. Uh, it's just a great chance, if you're interested in, in the technical aspects of something really compl- complex, and the people aspects, how one puts together a team of, of experts um, on that technology and learns how to work together in pretty demanding circumstances in terms of going to sea in all kinds of weather. Like there is no, uh, no challenge that combines um, the need for teamwork and the need for a, a technical expertise 
quite like being the captain of a of a warship. And so we, I would say that that was absolutely the the, the uh, most rewarding moment of my career was uh, was the time I spent in command of St. John's. Lovely. You know, your words ring true to me because I've had the fortune to go on allied warships, many of them over the years, and many of them are Royal Canadian Navy ships. And I'm always left impressed. Um, I spend a lot of time on the bridge when I go on these ships. But although there's a lot of important things that happen on the bridge of a warship, uh, let alone every other space on the ship, um, the operations room is really where things kind of come to a head for a combat ship, a, a surface combatant. And I think I'm I'm well-versed enough to know what's going on, but I'm always left so impressed when I hear the back and forth when an exercise is going on. And when I have the privilege to be in an ops room, it is so professional as though there's no kind of random well, what are you doing? Or everyone knows what they're doing. And the communication is crisp and it's sharp. It has to be, you know, this is very serious work, but I'm always left impressed by it. And I kind of wish more people would get the opportunity to see that because it's like, if you actually think about the orchestration, or I guess all of the training that it takes to get to that point where it is a finely honed unit, that is really, really cool to see. Yeah, you know, I, I think I'm really picking up what, what you're talking about. I think I have the same view of, of that. Inside the operations room, there's, you know, 25 to 30 people, uh, depending on what you're doing, uh, who are busy working together, and they all have their own responsibility, but they have to understand how that responsibility fits in with the full team. And so it's a real team sport, and it takes just a ton of work to organize. I remember being an operations room officer, um, and then years later, we were uh, we were tasked to uh, to make a commercial, and we had this huge group of um, of actors and directors and technical people for to make the commercial at sea with us. And I remember watching; they had four levels of directors. I didn't know that there was more than one director on a shoot. Uh, and all of the directors, um, they seemed just like the operations room officer to me. They all had uh, responsibilities to organize the timing and the conduct of every small part of the shoot, and which is exactly what it's like to be an operations room officer in with a group of 25 to 30 people in an ops room. Uh, and so I think that that, that skill set, that ability to take charge of a complex problem set and get a bunch of people to work together on it, um, that's a skill set that, that we give to people in, in the Navy just through training and then experience that would serve them well anywhere in life. Uh, and I think that that's something we don't always recognize, uh, that we're, we're creating not just sailors capable of fighting a warship, but people capable of taking on any challenge that you can imagine in society. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you described how worship is, is so complex, and you're absolutely right. Um, but I will go one further with you, and I'll say that uh, if you take that to mean a submersible warship, a.k.a. a submarine, um, that's, I, I'd say, probably the epitome next to probably spacecraft, right? Like, I mean, it's just it, the complexity and the no-fail nature of a submarine is is really, really interesting to me. Um, they're fast. Oh, absolutely. They're we had a chance to take uh, the chief of defense staff to sea in a submarine just for just for a day. It sailed up and down the harbor, and uh, and uh, I can tell you, he was uh, he was um, amazed at the 
at the teamwork and the ability of the submarine and the possibilities of that submarine to uh, to deliver on behalf of, of Canada, but only through that kind of incredible ability to work together. Because often in a submarine, um, the only guaranteed sensor might be the captain's eyeball looking through a periscope. And so um, all of the information that's going to come through that has to be filtered into a team inside a very small control room in, in the submarine that allows that team to, uh, to understand where it is, to understand where the, uh, the other vessels around them are, to figure out a fire control solution if the, if the need is to be able to, uh, to defend themselves or to take action against the enemy. Uh, an, an incredibly challenging job, all done under, uh, under high pressure uh, and all demanding incredible discipline and teamwork. Yeah, you're, you're not kidding, Admiral. You know, the first time I went on board a Victoria-class submarine, um, it was HMCS Victoria, and I, I distinctly recall thinking, no wonder these things take so much time to kind of get up to speed and, and you know, the, the maintenance time that it takes. And that's not a criticism in any way of, of anything, really. It's just... It was an acknowledgement to myself that when I saw how complex the submarines are, just by being inside one and looking at, like, you know, in my mind, I was thinking, how did somebody even design this? <laughs> you know? Oh, it's, it is amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It, re- it really no, I think, is. Uh, and I think that's that's a great point is that Canadians need to understand that, um, you know, that we're working towards getting a new fleet of submarines. Uh, if you want one submarine at high readiness, um, you need to own four submarines. Right. Uh, and if your if your program is working well, uh, the submarines are uh, are you know not too old and don't demand an extra level of, of maintenance because of age. Um, you can keep one at high readiness and one at a at a normal readiness, a lower level of readiness, but technically still able to go to sea. And the other two are in various maintenance periods. But you still need submariners for all four because they have to run the program whether they're at sea or whether they're alongside. And you need enough submarines to create those submariners on a steady state basis. Uh, the only way to become a submariner or a sailor is to go to sea. Uh, and so you need platforms that can go to sea. And so that's why, uh, you know, as we begin to look forward, if we're going to have submarines on both coasts regularly, or we have one high readiness submarine on each coast, um, and, we, uh, and we have enough submarine capacity to train those submariners, that's why the Navy is saying, uh, and the government um, is telling us to go ahead and, and look at that program, the number of submarines is between 8 and 12. You know, 8 is the bare minimum if you want to keep a submarine operational at high readiness and available to go and do a task on each coast. It's so important. Uh, you know, Admiral, I've, I've been all over the world and seen various Allied forces um, their navies and you're absolutely right like i mean submarine fleet is so important for a globally deployable navy uh like the royal canadian navy is but we have an extra challenge that perhaps some others don't perhaps some navies stay regional uh the canadian navy goes abroad all over the world but we also have the arctic as a challenge and i think there's a point where your description of the numbers of submarines that you need is an important one but then so is the fact that we've got three oceans to cover so you have to have you have to have hulls absolutely and so it it's interesting in the uh, you talk about being globally deployable um, I'm going to speak at a CGAI conference on uh, on um, theater ASW, as we call it. And theater ASW has to do with um, with working together with allies in a in a large area like the the entire North Atlantic as a theater of operations. 
Uh, and so if you want to work together with allies in, in a theater anti-submarine warfare uh, scenario, you have to be able to go where the enemy is. And so if you were to take um, Russia as a potential enemy, as, a, as an enemy who, who has um, the capability to deploy submarines, uh, submarines that can carry ballistic missiles and hypersonic missiles and cruise missiles uh, anywhere, and then therefore can hold you or your allies at great risk from long, long range. They don't need to come to Canada's coastal waters to hold Canada or the United States uh, at risk from these missiles. They can do it from a long, long way away. Um, if you want to be able to defend yourself, you actually need to go where the submarine is. Uh, you, don't, you can't wait for them to come to Canada uh, to, to threaten you. They can threaten you from somewhere else. And so that means that you need, a, uh, you need to go back to a, the Cold War thinking. If you want to, even if you don't know what their intent is today, if they have that capability, you have to be able to defend yourself against that capability if they then show the intent to, to hold North America at risk. And so you can imagine a scenario where, um, where they would rather that um, some countries in NATO don't defend uh, each other. Uh, the way they might do that is to hold a country at significant risk to divide the alliance. If you want to make sure that they don't hold you at significant risk, you have to be able to prosecute their capability wherever that is. And that could be in the middle of the Atlantic. It doesn't have to be near Canada. So to do that, you really do need to go back to that Cold War thinking, how do you know where those submarines are so that you can track them and, and if it was necessary, um, defend yourself from them by eliminating them. You have to have underwater uh, listening devices. You have to have long-range patrol aircraft. You have to be able to protect your high-value units with surface ships, and you have to be able to use diesel submarines in the choke points and allied nuclear submarines that are faster in the open spaces in order to make sure that, that there's never a moment where a potential enemy submarine is free to launch missiles from wherever they are without the consequences coming back to them. You make such a good point there, Admiral. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think a lot of people think, well, you know, why do we have to go further afield? No, absolutely. I, mean, I think people forget that that, uh, that during the Cold War, um, it was that the most worrisome thought was that uh, was that the enemy would have a second strike capability, as they say, uh, the ability to uh, to after a nuclear conflict had begun to launch another strike even if their own home territory had, had been destroyed and the ability on their territory had been destroyed. The fact that that's why um, all of the permanent members of the United Nations have always maintained um, nuclear ballistic submarines so that they could have that second strike and nobody could hold them at risk. You know, you would never attack these countries, you would think, because they could always strike back at you um, even, if, even, if you'd, uh, even if you'd eliminated their first strike capability. And so that's it's important to, uh, to understand that second strike capability and to be ready to protect ourselves and our allies from it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so there's a lot to unpack here. And, and one point in particular I'd like to just bring up first is knowing what the Canadian Armed Forces has invested in. Um, it makes me think of how Canadian Armed Forces have invested in a modernized CP-140 Aurora, the Block 4, is coming online. Um, a modern anti-submarine warfare multi-role helicopter, the CH-148 Cyclone. And a Halifax-class frigate that's having an underwater warfare upgrade. So when I think about all those different aspects, it makes me think that Canada could really become the global experts in ASW, anti-submarine warfare. 
And I should also add that we have the four diesel electric submarines. So when I put all of those elements together, to me, it makes me think that the Royal Canadian Navy could really hone its anti-submarine warfare skills, perhaps better than or at least equal to the global superpower, you know, the United States. You know, I think um, and scale does matter. And sure. so, um, so Canada will never be able to punch at the scale the United States has. Right. Uh, but I do think that the individual contributions to that effort, um, that they build on each other, as you say, that it's a, it's a combination of our willingness to work with our allies in, um, in underwater listening um, um, plans and devices, in aircraft, in ships, and in submarines, uh, and in the coordination of all of those things together. So I think, um, you know, by being experts in all of those things, uh, we, we increase our ability across each of them, uh, if that makes sense. And then uh, and that expertise, you know, is an important contribution to uh, keeping the alliance um, safe from, I say, from, a, from a, um, the ability of any enemy to hold a, us at risk. Yeah. And I guess in my mind, I was thinking that because we have all of those elements that really could equal awesome training, because diesel electric submarines, uh, I think most people are aware that they are quieter than nuclear submarines. And so if you can use our submarines, you know, and our aircraft and our ships to really hone those skills, then hopefully we become the experts, even if we don't have the the punching ability, um, you've got the skill set that now you can you can use and i think it's no secret that no navy these days operates in a vacuum usually when deployed it's kind of in a coalition or or a task group or multinational uh, combined effort no absolutely and i think uh, i think you're right you know i think we we see what happens in the south china sea and it's really clear that um that you know should there be a crisis in that region um, if the government of Canada wants to contribute to the resolution of such a crisis, it's going to be uh, through contribution to an allied effort and, a, and an allied plan to resolve a crisis. Uh, and so having tools in our toolbox that allows us to provide options for the chief of defense staff to respond to such a crisis uh, is very useful and very helpful and appreciated by allies. And all of those, uh, those skill sets, you say, any, any maritime theater, um, all of those capabilities uh, from uh, space-based assets through, uh, through um, cyber capabilities, through aircraft, through ships, through submarines, through uh, shore-based capabilities that are linked in through an, a network to that maritime space, uh, all of those would be helpful to an allied effort uh, and appreciated by an allied um, command team that was trying to resolve a crisis. And so if Canada... Uh, agrees with like-minded nations uh, that, that we want those capabilities in order to be part of a resolution to such a crisis, I think that, uh, that that's great news. You know, but you have to prepare for it long in advance. You know, there's a great old saying about if you want to avoid war, you prepare for war. Uh, you know, if you want to maintain the peace, you prepare for war. And so I think that that's, that's true today as it, as it always is, uh, and it takes a long lead effort to prepare those kind of capabilities. Hey folks, here's a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing today speaks about high-end capabilities. Such capabilities come from the training that warfighters undertake to be the best prepared that they can be. 
Cubic Defense is a market leader in training operators to be proficient in the application of their platforms for their warfighting mission. From well-integrated instrumentation systems, to game-based learning, to multi-domain, blended, live, virtual, and constructive training environments, Cubic Defense remains the U.S. allied and coalition partner of choice to deliver truth in training. Cubic's Total Learning Platform is a maritime game-based learning platform that has proven to reduce the time to train watch standards on U.S. LCS combatants by 90%, and Cubic's blended live virtual and constructive open standards-based solution enables live and virtual ships and aircraft to train together in a common, secure, synthetic environment. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. We are proud to have Cubic as a teammate for this podcast, and we thank them for their faith in us to help preserve the voices of military leaders like our guest today. To learn more about Cubic Defense, please visit them at cubic.com. And now, let's get back to our guest. I am a proponent for pushing the envelope in new capabilities, new ideas, new concepts of operations. And I was really intrigued when I interviewed one of your colleagues, uh, Sheldon Gillis. And he was a task group commander during an Opnanook serial. And he mentioned to me that the new Arctic and offshore patrol vessels were testing out some Todoray sonar equipment. You know, I thought that was awesome because, you know, the Royal Canadian Navy, let's be honest, does not have um, a huge fleet, right? You know, we have the ships that we have. So I have personally always felt that whatever hulls the Navy has should have the most capability that is reasonable. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, so um, Sheldon did a terrific job. He led uh, Harry DeWolf and Margaret Brook on the Nook two years ago um, and uh, and did just a a terrific job of, of um, getting so much effect out of those two ships' deployment to the north. And so uh, the ships are really amazing. And there's a, they're big ships, 6,000-plus uh, tons. They've got uh, all sorts of open space on board. Uh, and to your point, um, why wouldn't we look for uh, modularized capabilities that we can take on and off the ship in order to increase its capability for, for specific missions? And one of those missions could well be uh, understanding our, our undersea estate in the Arctic. So while the ship doesn't have a fitted sonar, um, we are experimenting with ideas like the, the it's called the traps, uh, and it was this total array system that we uh, had on the on the back of one of the ships. And we'll keep looking for uh, for innovative innovative ways to use these ships uh, to maximize our ability to understand our own uh, maritime estate. Yeah, uh, very cool. Uh, I I think that's a great strategy. Uh, I appreciate that the Arctic and offshore patrol vessels were never designed to be combatants. But what do you make of the criticism that the ships don't have any, well, to use your words, uh, punch? Because, again, when you have few hulls, you want to try to get the most capability out of them. I think I get what you're, you're driving at. They, yeah. um, you know, there, there's this um, theory about um, maritime tasks. Called, it's about booth triangle. You might have heard of it. And there's three, there's three legs of a triangle, of course, three sides. And uh, and navies do three things. They do military efforts, they do constabulary efforts, and they do diplomatic efforts. 
Um, and you can design a platform to focus on one or all of them. Um, but, but yet, you know, there's only so much mon money and there's only so many resources around. And so these Arctic offshore patrol ships, recognizing the current tasks in Canada's north, um, in Canada's north, we don't think anyone's going to invade Canada's north. But we do think that there are security threats to Canada's north, illegal fishing, pollution, um, resource extraction, people doing research with, with dual purposes who don't have the authority to do that research in our Arctic. All those things exist every day. Um, and Canada, not just Canada's Navy, but Canada needs an increased ability to secure the North against those kind of security threats. We don't think that there's likely to be a military threat to Canada's north. There, there could be a military threat through Canada's north, and that's where you see things like, like NORAD's mission being important. Um, you know, it's important that nobody be able to hold North America at risk through our airspace, you know, flying a missile or, or something through our airspace. And so NORAD, you know, is designed and, and optimized and will be uh, modernized to handle that threat. And I think it's important that we be able to um, not let our Arctic be used by submarines, although it's really hard to, if it's hard to operate a submarine at all, it's even harder in, in the Arctic. And so that's not, that's not a, the, the first choice of a place to hold Canada at threat from a submarine capability. But it's our Arctic, so we should be able to monitor it. Uh, but again, we don't think anybody's going to invade uh, Ellesmere Island. You know, we, um, I, I can remember uh, a former CDS joking that if anybody ever invaded Canada's north, the first thing we'd have to do is go rescue them. <laughs> Uh, and so, so we need to be honest about the capabilities we need. We can't gold plate everything because everything that we get means an opportunity cost of not getting something else, right. uh, whether that's in the military or just for Canadians in general. And so uh, I think these ships are really well situated to um, handle security threats, uh, constabulary missions. I think that uh, through um, clever uh, use of modularized systems, they can add to our understanding of our, of our domain awareness. Uh, and so I think in general, they're going to turn out to be incredible platforms, and they're uh, very uh, lightly crewed, so, um, so they're not a, a massive tax on the number of sailors we have to do other tasks. So I, I think Canadians are going to be really happy with these ships in the long run. Uh, I, I have no doubt that they're good ships. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I've I've had the fortune to go aboard HMCS Harry DeWolf, and uh, yeah, like I mean, plenty of space and just a, a, a lovely ship, a lovely class, um, and I am excited for the future of it because you know they get a lot of news for the Arctic side, but they have also that you know part of their their name is offshore patrol, and. Um, I can't help but think of the maritime coastal defense vessels. You know, they've done yeoman service to the Navy for many years, uh, but they are aging and they are a small ship. So, you know, even though they have a modular containerized capability as well, it's not as much as the Arctic offshore patrol vessel class, the, the Harry DeWolf class. Um, and I, I can't help but think um, just from a seamanship capability, you know, in bad weather, the MCDVs, I've never thrown up anywhere as much as I have on, on an MCDV. And, uh, and maybe that just is speaking to my stomach, but, um, but I can't help but think the Arctic offshore patrol vessel would be a little bit better at some of those rough seas. Yeah, it sure will. I mean, there's so much larger ship and a better sea keeping. And, and I think it, it's important, uh, that we have ships, you know, we, we live in Canada and the weather's not always great off the coast of Canada on all three sides. 
Absolutely. So we do need a ship capable of, of handling rough weather. We send those um, MCDVs around the world, all sorts of places, and get so much out of them. And they, uh, you know, when, when we wanted to refocus some of our frigate capacity to the Indo-Pacific region uh, here in Halifax, we came up with the, uh, the idea that we would reinvigorate our mine countermeasure capability and send two MCDVs a year. And so for the second year, we'll send two MCDVs off to join a NATO um, mine countermeasure group. Uh, and it's, so it's great news, and they're, they're getting, we're getting great work out of those, those uh, ships when they go. And the other thing that's really great about them is they provide a significant number of sea days that allow more junior sailors and officers to gain the experiences um, in a, that they would get in a bigger ship earlier in their career because uh, they, they're, they uh, need to take on leadership roles. So the commanding officer is a lieutenant commander instead of a commander, and the coxswain is a petty officer instead of a chief. Uh, and so on right down the line. And so they're getting incredible uh, leadership and management experiences earlier in their career that they'll take to other jobs in, in frigates uh, later on in their career, and they'll be so much better for it. Uh, we think that, uh, that Canada's Navy needs a small you know, uh, class of platforms still. Um, the MCDVs are now getting on to about 25 years of age. Uh, I know that we have begun the work uh, we don't yet have a, have a project, and, and we haven't um, yet, uh, you know, the, the government hasn't yet signaled that they want us to do it, but, but we need to begin to think about options for the government to consider uh, when it's time to consider whether we'll replace those MCDVs. And, uh, and I think in general, um, you know, a, a Navy uh, for a country with the longest coastline in the world and the need for, uh, for sailors to go to sea all around the world um, benefits a lot from, from a class of ship like the MCDVs. But I, I take your point about the rough weather. Hopefully the next one is just a little more uh, capable in, in, a, in a big seaway. Yeah, and with that, you know, you mentioned that the MCDV is a, a smaller ship and, and that there is utility for that. Uh, but do you anticipate, and, and granted, you just said that there's no program right now, but you have to start thinking about this capability or, or recapitalizing the capability. Um, do you anticipate that the follow-on to the MCDVs would probably be a bit bigger? Yeah, I think so. I think um, you know, we we when we built these, we thought that they would do um, just mine countermeasure work. Uh, they they would do what, what's called mechanical mine sweeping, and mm-hmm. uh, nobody does mechanical mine sweeping anymore. It's uh, just not the way you look for mines. Um, and we didn't build a perfect um, ship for that because uh, people who did do mechanical mine sweeping used um, non-metal hulls, right? Uh, and and we needed to get these ships built um, back in the uh, back in the nineties quick. Um, and not too expensively, and so we built a pretty simple hull that was a little smaller. But I think um, were we to replace these um, as we build the statement of requirements, I think they'll be a little bigger, a little faster, a little more capable of handling modularized uh, capabilities so that we can shift the mission around as required. You know, that's the, the right ship for Canada would offer a little more flexibility in, in size, speed, and, and modularity. Yeah, yeah. And it's got to be kind of a system of systems approach, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Admiral, but when I think about the modularity that is supposed to be designed into the AOPS, I hope that that kind of mindset translates across programs because, you know, you want things to be interchangeable as much as possible. So hopefully, you know, what would work on the AOPS would hopefully work on an MCDV or the follow-on to an MCDV and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think so. I think that, um, I think that that's the, the trend I'm seeing in, in industry 
Um, you know, and not just here in Canada, just in everywhere. People are understanding that. I think it's. I think sometimes we we think we're unique, but the the challenges that Canada faces are the challenges that that every country faces um, in in terms of uh, of um, having more expensive equipment um, and but just as much requirement for security uh, and uh, and needing to find flexible solutions, uh, needing to work with allies and needing uh, modular systems um, that probably take fewer sailors. Uh, I, I think our challenges are, are really common and, and therefore industry around the world is coming up with some similar answers to, to how to address that. Um, and and the, the people that we have to enforce development are, uh, are as good as anyone in the world. Uh, they'll they'll jump on those good choices, those good options. Yeah, right on. Well, so far in a roundabout way, we've talked about your career kind of deploying. We've talked about, you know, sailors having the opportunity to go around the world, you know, theater, ASW, et cetera, et cetera. Um, let's talk about the global maritime security situation today and the threat that you see out there. Because if we define that then that also defines requirements. And nobody has a magic ball or a crystal ball, but there are pacing threats. Um, we all see what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, you know, Russia is an aggressor, and so therefore they are an adversary. Uh, China is a pacing threat. And they have now, I believe, it's the largest navy in the world. Um, and so their claims to islands in the South China Sea are disputed by others in the international community. So there's a lot of stuff happening, and I'd love to get your perspective as the maritime component commander. And maybe you could just define for the listeners what that actually means, because I think it will add context to your answer about the global maritime security situation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the... Um... We, we separate um, what we're doing with forces um, through a, uh, a construct that divides force development, you know, the, the creation of new capabilities from force generation, where you, take, uh, where you take existing capabilities and you put them together with teams in order to create a capa uh, capability today that's, that can go and do a task with force employment, where, you, um, where you're actually in charge of, of those capabilities and units that are deployed anywhere at home or around the world, uh, with force management, where you, uh, where you manage the capability over its lifetime. So those, those Fs are, are important. Um, in, the, in the case of the Navy, the commander of the Navy, you know, Ad, Admiral Topshi and, and, uh, and the team up there in Ottawa with him, you know, Admiral Dan Charlebois and, uh, and, and uh, DGNFD uh, Commodore Jason Armstrong, um, they're doing the force development for the Navy. Um, the force generation of the Navy gets, uh, gets divided up between um, the two coasts, uh, Admiral Chris Robinson on the West Coast uh, and his team in MARPAC and our team here in Marland. We're generating um, ha about half the Navy each uh, in terms of, of, of the capabilities we'll have ready from today from units that DG and FD and, uh, and have been able to get us over the long haul. Um, the force employment, years ago, we chopped, if you were on a mission that was a named mission, um, no matter what service you came from, you belonged to and worked for uh, the commander of Joint Operations Command, uh, Admiral Bob Octerlone. Um A few years back, uh, when Admiral McFadden was the, was the commander of the Navy, um, he understood that, that CJOC, uh, while they have 
naval officers in it. That's what I was. My last job was chief of staff at CJOC. While the, while there are naval officers there, they don't have the same uh, focus on maritime operations that the Navy might. And so he created and offered up, and it was accepted, the idea that um, we would double hat the commander of Marland. So Marland would both force generate half of the Navy's capability, and Marland would be responsible for the force employment of all maritime missions on behalf of CJOC. And so I report to both Admiral Topshi to force generate half the Navy and to Admiral Octoloni to command and control the Navy that's around, just to take that strain of, for planning of current operations off the CJOC team and to really give it a, a naval focus to make sure that the, the right experts were in the room as we made the plans and as we executed them. So that's what we're doing here on, on the fifth floor. we got a team that um, that does all the work to, to plan naval uh, missions that CJOC will command uh, and then to control them and make sure that CJOC's comfortable that we're doing a good job. Now it's interesting, um, command and control is always so complex. Um, when most of the missions that we create um, we're chopping into an allied force. But when you give NATO and a NATO commander, who could be from any of the countries, when you give a NATO commander command of your ship in a standing NATO maritime group, for instance, um, you don't chop over full command. National command stays with the nation. And so the, in the end, the need to support it with, um, with logistics, the need to repair things that get broken, the need to decide to fly people back and forth, and the ultimate decision about, about whether it will take action in the event of a crisis, all that stays with the nation. And so even while we chop over um, operational or tactical command to, uh, to NATO forces or to other allied forces, national command stays here in Canada, and we do all that here in Halifax as, as the MCC. Right on. And so that focus as a maritime component commander, uh, you have to consider everything that's kind of happening around the world because you have direct connection to the ships that are deploying. So I mentioned Ukraine, I mentioned China. Um, of course, those aren't the only threats that are out there or potential threats. But, um, but what do you see as the threat vectors from a maritime security perspective? Yeah, you know, it's... Um your point about having to keep awareness um we have a team here in trinity and our our intelligence section that the j2 here in in uh, marland and that that team at trinity is a, a couple hundred strong it's an incredible uh capability um and so we monitor the world's oceans and what our allies and our and our potential adversaries are doing all around the world i get a a weekly report and updates more often if necessary uh, i get a weekly brief from them um, where at the end of that brief, I have no doubt in my mind that I'm privileged to be um, the most aware Canadian anywhere in the world of what's happening on the world's oceans in terms of military threats and, and what our allies are doing. Uh, and it's, a, it's, it's an incredible capability. And so, I, so I, I do feel really privileged to get that brief every week and to understand it. And it lets us um, build plans and make recommendations about where to um, send ships and, and sailors um, what missions to do, what, what the threats are when, when they go. Um, you know, we, we do have a very good understanding of that. A lot of that we, we get from the team's um, primary research, and a lot of it we get from sharing with, with allies. Uh, and so, uh, so it's, it's a really comprehensive view. And I can tell you, you know, even at an unclass level, uh, you know, you've hit on the two things that, that I spend most of my time worrying about. I am um, deeply concerned, firstly, um, that... Uh, that um, the choices that happen in the South China Sea could lead to a conflict 
in the sh in the short to medium term, um, and um, and I don't know what the decision would be in terms of, uh, of of what Canada would do if there was a conflict. But I know that it's important that um, that we are fully on top of that possibility, understand how it would play out, were it to play out, uh, and and build the capabilities to interoperate with our with our allies should that happen, so that we can offer the government of Canada um, the option. If, if it chooses to be part of a response to a crisis. So I, I would say that's my number one worry, is that that crisis could come, um, and are we doing everything we can so that um, if the government needs us to be part of a, a response, we're ready. The number two thing that I think about is, um, is whether the conflict in Ukraine uh, could spill over to NATO countries, um, and, I, and uh, I anticipate then that the government would want to react if there was an Article 5, um, and so I spend, uh, you know, us and the team here, we spend the next uh, part of our time really thinking about are we ready for, um, for a conflict if it were to spill out into, the, into NATO countries um, and, a, and required a response from NATO, are we uh, ready to respond to that crisis? Uh, you know, after those two crises, I think um, we have um, ships that regularly go off the, uh, the coast of um, uh, Korea. Uh, in order to enforce UN Security Council resolution sanctions against uh, against North Korea in terms of uh, trying to dissuade them from uh, from furthering their efforts to uh, acquire a nuclear capability, and so in doing that mission, um, I'm very aware of the the risk to, to ships in that region um, from from miscalculation. Uh, it wasn't so many years ago that the North Koreans sank a South Korean ship uh, that was in South Korean waters. And so, uh, so we're very aware of that possibility and threat as well. Uh, and then I think a bit about Iran as well. We um, we have regular missions in the Indian Ocean, um, and there's uh, and there is concern um, that there could be a conflict in that region uh, between Iran and others. And uh, and if there was a, an Allied decision to take action against uh, a crisis in that region. Um, it's possible that the government of Canada would ask us to be ready to be involved in that region. It's happened several times in, uh, during my career, and so I, so I think it's important we keep track of, of that situation and that possibility as well. Uh, and so those are probably the, the, the big ones. You know, we, we do a bunch of other missions, um, like, uh, like the counter-drug mission we do off, off Carib, uh, so it's important we understand that, uh, that challenge. We do, um, we do capacity building missions in places like, uh, like Africa, um, that we uh, that we get after, uh, but I'm not concerned about them in the same way in terms of threat. Right, right. Um, so yeah, so there's some interesting things with all of that. Um, recently, HMCS Montreal has sailed with a U.S. Navy destroyer through the Strait of Taiwan, um, which is international waters. I think. Um, you know, if you're going from point A to point B, you go the most expedient route, unless you unless you choose not to. And um, I think it's important that that is demonstrated, particularly since it's international waters. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I mean, we don't look to demonstrate anything in particular. We were, you know, Montreal was uh, was exercising with allies um, in the South China Sea. They left Singapore a bit before that, and they were uh, they met up with a U.S. ship that they were 
um, practicing operations, making sure we're ready for a crisis just by operating together regularly, going through the sort of drills that we regularly would do with each other. It's just a challenge to even, um, to even communicate and get on a link with, uh, with allies. And so you just need to do it regularly. And it helps to do it in the region where you might have to operate together. Like say, we, we see the possibility of crisis in that region and we don't know whether, um, whether um, in the event of a crisis we would need to go, but we, we need to be ready so we can offer a real option. So working with the Americans was important. They were going from there up up to uh, towards Japan, where they were gonna they were going into Okinawa was their next visit, and they needed to operate with Japanese ships. And so going through the Straits of Taiwan, it was as as you say, was just the natural route to take. Um, and so it, there's there's no intention to make a statement. We're just going in uh, in the natural place we need to go to conduct the operations that we're that we're planning and, and mandated to do. Um, and whenever we do that, we operate in accordance with international law. Uh, and I'm quite confident uh, that we had, uh, you know, briefed up the commanding officer and his team in, in Montreal, uh, and that they at all times acted professionally and in accordance with international law. Uh, and I think that uh, that it's important that that all nations uh, do that and and insist on that from each other uh, in a respectful way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you also uh, mentioned North Korea. You know, I think about how they keep demonstrating missile launches and how incredibly dangerous that is, particularly with their nuclear aspirations. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that Canada is, is participating in, in that UN sanction uh, and that ships and, and uh, assets are, are devoted to that task. Um, but it speaks to capability as well. Um, so for the listeners that are unaware, if you don't mind, Admiral, please explain to me cooperative engagement capability and what that will mean for the Canadian Navy moving forward. Right. You know, the, um, we've made a decision with the next class ship, the Canadian Service Combatant, which is in the design phase still. We haven't finalized the design, but we've made some really important decisions about what the design will include. And one of those decisions is it'll include uh, the Aegis capability as part of, uh, of the command suite. And, and Aegis is a, a long-running program. It's advanced a lot over the 50 years it's existed, but Aegis is a long-running U.S. program that, that combines the sensors and weapons in a U.S. warship for anti-air warfare. Um, and it works alongside the rest of the combat system uh, for, for an integrated solution. And so we're working our way through the exact details of that design, but we've made a decision uh, and come to an agreement with the United States through a, uh, um, a foreign military sales case uh, where we will put the Aegis system um, in the center of our Canadian service control, our service combatant ships. Uh, and that, that system includes something called cooperative engagement. And that cooperative engagement capability is such that all the ships that are in a, in a group working together who have um, Aegis and this cooperative engagement uh, capability would be able to, um, to have their missiles fired from each other. So uh, if the threat could be detected from ship A, um, but, the, but, the most, but the optimum defense for the group comes from ship B, then ship B's missile is used as opposed to ship A's missile. And, uh, and so I think it's, um, you know, that's, that in broad strokes is what it's about. Um, and I think that um, as warfare gets more and more complicated, as threats get more complicated and, uh, you know, and faster, uh, more stealthy, um, it'll be more and more important to use technology to the maximum limit if we're going to be able to work together uh, with like-minded nations uh, to face a crisis. Yeah, 
totally agree. Totally agree. Um, and that actually speaks to that other emerging threat, uh, and it's also a capability, and that is hypersonic weapons. Yeah, so the um, so you know your ability to handle a hypersonic missile will be based on um, on the radar. Uh, it'll be it could be based on your ability to uh, be involved in a link architecture, which uses um, other platforms, maybe space based platforms, um, ability uh, to track things. Uh, so so communications, so both your own radars and the communications uh, are key to it. And then you have to have the right um, the right um, Defender, you have to have, a, have to have the right missile in order to intercept it, um, and so uh, so I think we're we're working our way through it. I know that there are trials in allied nations uh, to to make sure that um, that allies have those the, the, all three of those things, um, and then uh, and so we're putting it together. Um, as you say, uh, I, I think the the final design will show. Um, whether we've uh, whether we've got all the right capabilities to do that, but but we're we're quite aware that the threats will continue to advance. Um, you know that 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 um, ten years ago uh, a cruise missile had a certain capability, and now it has another capability. It's faster. It's more maneuverable. It's more stealthy. Um, we'll need to make sure that as we um, as we finish the design on the Canadian surface combatant, we have the capabilities we need now, and we have the capability and we have the ability to add capability as threats evolve. And that's a challenging space because, as, as we all know, we're, we're driving 30-year-old ships. Uh, we did a major refit in them, you know, um, um, eight to ten years ago. And so it'll be important that we, be, we continue to build um, the capacity to improve the ships uh, throughout their life. Yeah, and I, I think what you're speaking about there um, is, you know, you reference the ships that we currently have, the, the Halifax class. Um, they are primarily uh, defensive in nature. Um, aside from their harpoon missiles, I think all of the weaponry, all of the armament on board is a defensive capability primarily. Um, but that is changing with the Canadian surface combatant, including to have a land attack capability. Um, although the, the current harpoon has a limited land attack capability, um, I think the future Canadian surface combatant will have much more capability in all aspects. Yeah, no, absolutely, and that, and that was in the in the requirements, and and that's what the final design will will show. Um, you know, the the current frigate has a has a valuable place in an, any Allied effort to uh, to uh, regain sea control. Um, you know, it's it's uh, I would say that it's ASW capability uh, with the embarked helicopter um, allows it to reach out in an offensive way uh, in order to eliminate uh, enemy submarines in, a, in an area, which then allows you to regain sea control. I would say its ability to defend itself and another vessel that was close to it through the Sea Sparrow missile um, allows you to, to uh, defend yourself while you're uh, gathering that, um, that anti-submarine warfare uh, capability that allows you to exercise sea control. And again, as you say, the Harpoon missile has uh, both a surface uh, attack mode and a limited land attack mode um, and does add to the overall um, overall capability of a, of a task group that's trying to secure a, a specific area. So, I, you know, that was what they were designed to do. They're still cap quite capable of doing that, thanks to the Halifax-class modernization that we went through. Um, and, uh, and importantly, um, they'll continue to go to sea until the Canadian Service Combatant is ready to both give Canada the option to contribute to a response to a crisis anywhere in the world and to 
continue to create that next generation of sailors so that when we do get the Canadian service combatant uh, in the 2030s, uh, we'll have a group of, of people who are ready at every level to, to move on board those ships and, and take over. Hey everyone, I'd like to take a quick moment to speak about our co-sponsor for this episode, and that is Federal Fleet Services and Davy Shipbuilding. This episode focuses on the high-end warfighting capabilities of Canadian warships. Warships like these are best enabled by support and replenishment ships, making them strategic assets. Federal Fleet Services supports the Royal Canadian Navy through the ownership, operation, crewing, and in-service support of their mission-critical combat support ship, MV Asterisk. The Asterisk provides replenishment at sea services, cargo handling, helicopter operations, and operational support to the Royal Canadian Navy, thereby ensuring that Canada can project its naval operations worldwide. The company provides an integrated turnkey service encompassing all the required capabilities to operate and manage ships worldwide and throughout the entire life cycle of the platform. The Asterisk was built by sister company Davy Shipbuilding, Canada's oldest and highest capacity shipyard, which is now a part of Canada's national shipbuilding strategy. Davy Shipbuilding specializes in the construction or the conversion of large ships for navies, coast guards, and commercial operators, and has the capacity to do multiple builds at the same time. Davy is also home to a Naval Support Center of Excellence for the refit of the Canadian patrol frigates. Designed and built by Davy, the asterisk was delivered to the customer on time and on budget, an accomplishment that is seldom achieved in the defense industry. It has been in continuous and uninterrupted service to the Royal Canadian Navy for six years and has performed replenishment at sea operations involving over 15 Allied navies around the world, and that means it has become an integral part of Canada and NATO's maritime defense capabilities. To learn more about Federal Fleet Services and the combat support ship Asterisk, please visit federalfleet.ca and visit Davy Shipbuilding at davy.ca. Now, let's get back to our guest. We just talked about cooperative engagement capability and how that's going to be built into the future Canadian surface combatant. And I just mentioned how there's going to be a land attack capability. Um, so basically having vertical launch cells that have the capacity to take that type of a weapon. Um, but in talking about cooperative engagement, I just want to pull on this thread here. And that is... Um, the Royal Canadian Navy has unfortunately lost its quote-unquote destroyer capability with the 280s being retired. And uh, they had standard missiles for area air warfare. Um, but the current standard for an anti-ballistic missile capability is the standard missile 3, SM-3. Um, will the Canadian surface combatant be fitted with an SM-3 or will it be an SM-2 slash SM-6 capability? Yeah, I don't think we've, we've finalized what the um, full outfit of, of missiles will be. I mean, I think the, the key is the, the flexibility that the, uh, the missile launcher will bring, uh, will allow us to, uh, at any point, um, you know, as long as the software enables it, and Aegis will, of course, uh, it'll allow us to uh, to move from uh, from one standard missile to a different standard missile depending on, on the mission. And so it's, it's simply a matter, I think, of, uh, 
of making sure we maintain that flexibility, which we will through the launcher and through the uh, through the radar and through the Aegis system, um, and then uh, and then we'll be able to adjust missile loads um, and the training that goes with them uh, in order to in order to pick up the different standard missiles. Because as you say, um, some of the some of the standard missile is um, um, made for ballistic missile defense, some is made for cruise missile defense. Uh, and, and so on, uh, but the same launcher will be the launcher that, that lets us do uh, land attack as well. And so, uh, so you know, a great decision to to go with that uh, that missile launcher, um, and then the overall Aegis system along with the radar. Yeah, totally. It gives it gives flexibility, which is what you want. Um, so you know, we we kind of have talked there about the Pacific Theater. Um, you know, you get those security briefings every week. Um, to what you can speak about, you know, what's the lens that you have on what is happening in Ukraine and occurrences in the Black Sea? Because there are some disruptive things that have happened there. And so I'm just kind of curious, what has kind of interested you and how that might relate to the Canadian Navy moving forward? Yeah, yeah, we we do get regular briefs uh, as part of the brief I get every week. Um, we do focus, of course, on, on the conflict in Ukraine. Um you know, I can I can tell you that uh, that what's interesting is the same thing that you're reading in, in the open press. Uh, what's interesting is um, how vulnerable ships can be to um, to drone attack, and how the defense against drone attack, either um, in ships that are at sea or in port facilities, um, you know, it's it's really pretty much it's agricultural. It's it's um, it's you know it's gates over harbor entrances. And it's uh, and it's um, shotgun type uh, responses, and uh, and so um, it's interesting. Um, you know, the the drones are changing things some ways, but in other ways, they're just making people rediscover those those sort of mechanical defenses that they always had in in a lot of cases. And uh, and so I think um, we have to be aware that uh, that the innovation isn't always high tech. Sometimes the innovation is a rediscovery of, uh, of old-fashioned ways of, of looking after yourself um, and getting organized uh, just as much as it is technology. And so I think uh, part of the innovation is a willingness to, uh, to do whatever it takes. Oh, for sure. And I, I think that, um, uh, you know, what we've seen in that theater with drone attacks and even swarming, uh, which I think has been demonstrated or has been seen in the Arabian or Persian Gulf, um, that's of concern too. So yeah, it's it's a complex problem set. When you think about it, trying to have like one class of ship, like a, a surface combatant, to do all of these different things, no wonder it's so complex. Yeah, absolutely, and and so it it makes you uh, makes you realize that um, like why, why we would like to have reduced crew sizes in order to be more efficient. Um, we need to be careful not to reduce crew sizes too far because without sufficient extra people, you're not going to be able to quickly adjust how you're defending yourself if that requires um, you know crew served weapons, for instance. Uh, if that requires boarding party kind of capacity, and so I think yeah, I think we have to be very uh, cognizant that um, that the asymmetry of uh, of attacks with low tech things like uh, like really simple drones um, on the surface or in the air or under the water, the asymmetry of that might require a response that is people intensive, um, and so therefore you you do need a certain number of sailors. 
Yeah, th that's really interesting that you say that, Admiral, because um, if you look at the Halifax class today, um, what were crew-served weapons that would be like on bridge wings or, or the, the forecastle or, or at the aft of the ship is now replaced with remote weapon stations. Um, so obviously people are not at risk. Um, there's, I guess you could say perhaps better coverage, you know, through sensors and the ability to kind of slew weapons. Um, so there's the automation side of things, which you hope helps. And, and I guess the remote side of things, um, versus that challenge that you say, where you need the bodies, if, if you need them to do certain things. It's interesting. And so some of that, some of the work's changed, right? So the right. a crew serve weapon that had a couple people on it on the upper decks is now replaced by uh, by what looks like something that there's no people on it, but those people are down below. Right. Um, and there is, um, and while there might be fewer people operating the system than before, the system's a little more mechanically complex and takes more hours of maintenance to keep in good con condition. And therefore, you haven't actually reduced the number of sailors required. You just changed what they do. Now it's it's better aimed, it's more accurate, the crew is safer because they're not exposed, um, but there's still just as many people working the system on a day-to-day -day basis to make sure that, it, it, that all of its components are, are working. So we've we, we got to be careful not to, um, not to assume that there's a huge saving in people. Um, for some, some things there will be, but uh, we need to go through the whole process of understanding the full requirement of a, of a new system, including things like, like maintenance uh, and sustainment of that system in order, to, uh, in order to get it right so it'll be working on the day you really want it. It's so important. Uh, you know, if we look at the Royal Navy and their Type 45 destroyers, like they've had a number of issues that have afflicted them and their availability has not been what the Royal Navy has wanted. Like, I mean, that's in open press. And, um, and so, yeah, you have to have that technical proficiency. You have to have the manpower to be able to, to service and maintain all of these things. And these are, as we've explained, complex systems. So, yeah, it's got to be a huge challenge from a Navy planning perspective because not only do you have these very complex warships, um, then you have, like, vessels like the future joint support ship or the current asterisk combat support ship or, or supply ship, however you want to coin it, um, that takes manpower too. And, um, obviously with the personnel challenges, um, it's, it's gotta be a, it's gotta be a huge challenge for, for the Navy. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the asterisk is a, is a great, uh, example of, of how we've, uh, taken it on differently. I think it's turned out to be a, a real success. Uh, allies can't get enough Asterix, so Asterix has traveled around from here with HMCS Montreal to the East China Sea, but they'll serve up some Allies gas before they leave that region. Um, and then if there's anybody that needs it on the way across, we'll, uh, we'll divert her just enough to get somebody else gas if that comes up at short notice. Uh, she's a real force multiplier for us and, and for Canada's reputation, in addition to helping us train our own sailors and how to do that complex replenishment at sea. And then she'll be on the West Coast here in a few weeks to, uh, to help um, to help train up HMCS Ottawa and HMCS Vancouver um, before they all go back across the ocean to do, uh, to do another Indo-Pacific uh, deployment as part of Op Horizon. Yeah, you know, I've had the pleasure to be on board Asterisk for a RIMPAC, and what an amazing capability. And, you know, there's been controversy about it in terms of whether it can go into a combat area or not. 
I would argue that it is demonstrated it's gone all over the place that the Navy is needed. Now, whether that would be in a hostile environment or not is almost, to me, besides the point, it has gone everywhere the Navy's needed it to go. And it's delivering fuel not only to the Royal Canadian Navy, but to allies. And it's done it with this kind of mixed crew concept, which is not new to navies. Um, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, the US NS ships, like, I mean, they all kind of have this similar type concept. So, um, yeah, I think it's been awesome. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly has delivered. There's, not, there's no question in, in my simple sailor mind. <laughs> I don't think you have a simple sailor mind, Admiral. <laughs> not at all. Um, so let's shift our discussion now to talking about new technologies. And specifically where I'd like to go is, you know, you referenced um, drones and that kind of capability. Um, there are navies, obviously the U United States Navy has a lot of money and they've got a lot of resources available to them. But there are unmanned capabilities that are being tested in the air on the surface and under the surface. And Canada kind of seems to dabble in some of these things here and there, and I say that with all due respect. So what are your thoughts about unmanned capabilities in the maritime domain? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's self-evident that we're going to need to up our game there, uh, that everybody will, that everybody sees the potential of, uh, of uncrewed vessels uh, over, on, and below the surface. Uh, there's, there's no doubt. I think in general, um, we understand that um, there's a lot of risk to sending it too far all by itself. Uh, that you're not going to that if it's got a high tech capability, uh, there's a your chance you're going to lose it. Um, and so, um, so a lot of that capability will be deployed from crewed vessels uh, and and then controlled from crewed vessels uh, in a, in large numbers in order to increase, almost like you have a better set of radars or better set of sonars, you're going to increase the, the range of your, of your sensors by having uncrewed vessels out from your crewed vessel, uh, if that makes sense. And that provides a little bit of a, uh, a little bit of a barrier to, to threats coming in towards you as well. Uh, so I think, um, we need to get after that. I think there's some really, um, as you say, big navies are getting after it perhaps better than small navies. I think about task force 59, which is in, uh, in working in the Persian Gulf for Commander Fifth Fleet, um, and Task Force 59 was purpose-built to begin to experiment in uncrewed vessels. Uh, and there's there's some real excitement there. Uh, when you're big, when you've got scale, you can try a lot of things. And if some of them fail, it's it's not the end of the world. It's kind of like being a venture capitalist, right? If you if you run 10 things and only one make it, you're you're still a multimillionaire. But uh, but you've got to have enough resources to try 10 things. And so if you're a small Navy, that's, there's more risk in it, and that's harder. And so I think I'm excited by um, what's going to happen with NATO, uh, with the program they've, they've begun called DIANA, the, um, the Defense Innovation Accelerator for the North Atlantic. And I think there's some real excitement here. That head office for North America is going to be in Halifax. Uh, and I expect that, um, that we will, um, through that uh, DIANA initiative, NATO countries, large and small, will have the ability to be involved in some really exciting challenges. So they'll they'll take a, a neat challenge. You can think of just about anything you want to. Uh, maybe it could be finding uh, doing a better job of sensing submarines under the ice, for instance. You know, they'll they'll use that that web of uh, of um, that network of small to medium sized companies to issue these kinds of challenges out and get some real innovation going. And I think here in in Halifax, there are a lot of small to medium sized companies that could help us a lot with um, 
with some really challenging defense spaces. And if they have a chance to win contracts at the end of it with 30 NATO nations, uh, you know, it's going to be worth their while too. So I think I think for Canada, for Canadian industry, for uh, our security and defense challenges, um, I think the the right way to get after innovation is to is to begin to work together with with like-minded nations through things like Diana. Yeah, I think that that will be the pathway to some of this innovation because, um, let's be honest, Admiral, like the procurement process is so um, so frustratingly slow. Yeah, and I, and I can see why it's slow. There's there's so much at risk, right? There's right. so much money yep. involved, and there uh, and and say and if you've only got enough money to to place one bet on the roulette table, you don't have a lot of chances. Right? You you know I, I'm not a big gambler, but I think if you play roulette, you're supposed to put a bunch of bets out. Yeah, I'm not a big gambler myself, but I think the challenge in that is that when you have a slow procurement process, that the small agile guys are like, we don't have enough staying power to stay in the game and therefore perhaps something that might be really really innovative and uh, and game changing might just get totally passed over that right. is a challenge and so that's why these these ideas like uh, like task force 59 that's mandated specifically to to uh, to try things to fail forward fast as they say or diana that's that's built around the same kind of idea um you know uh, reward multiple people for taking a small chance and then down select slowly to the eventual winner. Um, I, I think those those um, strategies hold real promise for, for innovation. Yeah, right on. So Admiral, as we get close to the end of our chat here, I'd love to hear what has been some of the most rewarding aspects of service to you. You know, I think, um, like I, I joined to be in, in chips with sailors. Uh, and so by far the the uh the most rewarding moments were were those moments where we uh where we we got a chance to go to sea and let more junior people you know have a chance to to grow and to to expand twice in my career I was a member of our sea training groups once I was the operations room officer in sea training pacific uh right after nine eleven so I, my very first workup started two days before nine eleven and I spent two years uh preparing and uh and training ships that were going to deploy on, on Op Apollo. Uh, every one of those workups was really rewarding. And then I spent a year after commanding a ship as the Commander of Sea Training Atlantic uh, and a really similar experience uh, where we got to, got to take ships through their bases in, in, in a month, you know, take a ship from, uh, from just, you know, gelling as a technically ready but as a crew that had never come together to uh, a month later uh, having a ship that we felt safe to leave anywhere in the world. And, uh, you know, as Commander Sea Training Atlantic, I can remember leaving uh, Her Majesty's Canadian ship Ville de Quebec on a NATO uh, mission that they spent one day on, and then they got the call that they had to go to the East Coast of Africa and uh, and um, escort ships past uh, large numbers of pirates to, to feed uh, starving people in East Africa. Uh, you know, missions like that where you, where you bring an entire ship together uh, for a tough mission um, by far the most rewarding part of a career. Yeah. And what about leadership, whether it be your leadership style and how it is evolved or, uh, what your views are on how to be a leader or a good leader? Yeah. You know, uh, once I flew out to join a ship, it was, um, summer 2001, so a little bit before 9-11 and there was, uh, they, they needed an extra person to join Her Majesty's Canadian ship Winnipeg in, uh, in the Gulf. We were doing um, embargo operations against uh, Iraq uh, as part of the oil embargo, um, and 
and so it was it was pretty exciting up there in the northern Arabian Gulf. We were just outside the territorial waters of, of, of Iraq, um, and there were um, there were smugglers trying to sneak out of, of Iraq with uh, illegal oil that was going to support the regime, uh, and so our our job was to stop them, uh, and they would be. Um, running south from there, and their choice was try to get past us in the open part of the Arabian Gulf or go into Iranian territorial waters and risk being um, stopped by the Iranians who would then demand a, a significant bribe in order to run down the, the Iranian territorial waters. Uh, and uh, the spicy part was having a boarding party on that edge of that territorial water trying to get the job done before a, a target vessel would go into the Iranian waters. Uh, and I can remember joining a ship that was already worked up and had been on station for a few weeks um, doing this mission, and then they needed an extra person, and I had to go in as a, an operations room officer um, and and lead a team. So I, I joined uh, Winnipeg and as uh, as the on-watch ORO, and I joined in the middle of the night, and I had the middle watch, and the team already knew what they were doing, um, and, it, and it struck me that uh, the right approach to leadership um, with a little less directive. And so I can remember saying to them, uh, you know, hey, folks, um, I know you know what you're doing, so careful what you recommend, because whatever you recommend, we're going to do it tonight. And they, uh, and you could just see them all kind of knuckle down a little bit as they, as they realized that no one was going to second-guess them. Um, and I always remember that moment as, uh, as, as really empowering. When, when you let people know that you really do trust them and that you really are going to do what they recommend, they put a little more thought into it before they come up with the idea. Yeah, I love that. Um, so as we close out, I'm going to ask you to share a sea story. You've just given me some examples there, uh, so I don't know if, if it's unfair to ask for another one. But, you know, if you think back of, of your career, um, tell me something that really stands out for whatever particular reason, whether it be personally or whether it be from an operational perspective, um, whatever. Yeah. You know, I, I think often I was talking with uh, a friend of mine, Sam Patchell, who's the uh, commanding officer of HMCS Ottawa. I know and, him and well. I was the captain of St. John's. He was my navigator. Awesome. Uh, terrific young officer. Uh, had all the confidence in the world in him. And we were in the Baltic on an exercise, uh, and we were with a, uh, with a German tanker, uh, the Spessart, and, uh, which was, and it had been terrific. really well-run uh, small tanker, that, uh, that we had rasped with a dozen times over the week and a half already. Uh, and we were getting ready to do our last one, and we felt very comfortable with them, um, had a lot of confidence in each other. Uh, it, was, it was nighttime, uh, but a pretty nice night, but it was nighttime, and we were sailing along in the, in the Baltic and getting our last drink of gas before we were going to leave the, the group in, the day, in a day or two. Uh, and I remember uh, comfortably out there on the, on the Port Bridge Wing and just enjoying the evening, and, uh, and we were all hooked up and getting gas. And Sam uh, said, just a little bit of alarm in his voice. He said, I think they're getting closer. And, uh, and, and we looked up, and, and they were. They were staring towards us. while we, we were only 50 yards apart, and they were getting closer alarmingly quick. So we said, you know, starboard steer 350, steer 352. And then, and it wasn't working. Starboard 5, starboard 15. And we were steering, but, and all of a sudden we had 30 degrees of helm on, maximum helm, and we were still all hooked up. We'd sounded the alarm and we're trying to break away, but it takes a couple minutes. And um, just then uh, Sam said, you know, hey, sir, I think, I think they're opening. And so we reversed the helm and we, we zigzagged across the ocean, hooked on to this uh, German tanker with this steel wire rope under tension in the dark. 
um, for a couple minutes as, it, as we tried to unhook the gear and in an emergency situation uh, without getting anybody killed. Um, and uh, so we finally broke away. It seemed like forever, but I'm sure it was only two minutes. Uh, and, we, uh, and we came to a stop, and the, and the German uh, captain called over to apologize and say that he didn't know what had happened. He'd had a steering failure, and then the rudder had locked one way, and then it had locked the other way. And somehow, uh, you know, thanks to Sam's sharp, sharp eyes, we hadn't uh, killed a sailor or smashed the sides of the ship up or broken the span wire or anything. Somehow we'd, we'd gotten through the whole thing. Um, and I always remember that the, the German captain, he was quite apologetic, and he sent over a, uh, a, um, a gift to say sorry. And it was this um, oil can. And inside the oil can was this uh, traditional German drink called Rohal. And it was the worst thing I've ever tasted, i got to say. I, I made all the heads of department come have a, a sip of it with me when we got alongside in, uh, in uh, um, the next port of call. It was, um, it was um, where did we go next? So we went up to, to Ireland next. So we, we, we had a drink of this awful thing in Ireland and remembered those Germans. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm so glad everyone was okay. I, you know, we can laugh about it after the fact, but uh, wow, wow. And that is the thing about being on the sea, right? It's, um, it's exciting. It can be quiet and nothing happening, and then things can change in, a, in an instant. And it, it, that's even more pronounced when you're on a warship. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, like I say, you, and, uh, and the difference between, uh, between everybody uh, thanking you for your, uh, your efforts and, uh, and being court-martialed, you know, the, it could be a yard or two. Yeah, right. Right. And that's, you know, I've, uh, I think people that you know, I know, consider friends have had, uh, sadly careers end, um, just because of things that have happened that way. So yeah, this is serious business for sure. Um, and, uh, but it, it's, it's exciting work and, and, you know, I feel privileged to have the opportunity to speak with people like yourself who are gracious with your time and allow me the opportunity to ask you these questions and go down memory lane. Um, I find it fascinating and, uh, and I've always respected people who serve in uniform. So, um, yeah, I just really, really appreciate the time that you've given to me, Abril. We've covered a lot. It's been awesome. Absolutely. Hey, all, all thanks to you for uh, helping getting the word out. Uh, you know, hopefully it uh, makes Canadians realize uh, what what they've got in in their small navy. It uh, it does an awful lot around the world, and uh, I think it brings good credit back to Canadians. And it's a great opportunity for for young people. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope you know for the international listeners, it gives an appreciation for what Canada has and what Canada does, and how far afield Canada goes. It's um, um, you know, I, I, we often hear uh, the words, you know, punching above our weight. Um, I think that's very much a case for the Canadian Navy. I, I couldn't have said it better. Uh, hey, wonderful. Rear Admiral Santarpia, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on Go Bold. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I've really enjoyed this, and I look forward to the next time we get to speak. Absolutely, and thanks so much for telling the story of our Navy. Thanks, Joy. Thank you very much. That, my friends, was Rear Admiral Brian Santarpia, the Commander of Maritime Forces Atlantic, the Joint Task Force Commander Atlantic, and also the Maritime Component Commander for the Royal Canadian Navy. If you have any questions for us at Go Bold, please reach out to us at GoBoldThePodcast at gmail.com, and we hope you'll join us for another episode of Go Bold. Take care, everybody.
The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner.